Well, I know many of you are starting Bible reading plans today. At least I hope that you are. If you're not, I hope it's because your Bible reading plan from last year is carrying over into, uh, into this year, which that's totally fine as well. Um, that is the case for me. I do the one chapter of the Bible a day, which takes about three and a half years to get through the whole Bible. Some of you are like, no, I want three chapters a day. I want five a day. I want to get through the whole Bible in a year. I only want to read it five days a week and take a break on the weekends. Listen, um, a Bible reading plan is a lot like a diet. You got to find what's going to work for you. You got to find, and some of you started those today too, right? So you got to find what's going to work for you. You got to find something you can be consistent with. And the key is reading your Bible every day and being intentional and having a plan to do it. It's not going to happen on accident. You're not going to accidentally open it and accidentally read it every day. You need a plan, you need a system. And, and if you haven't done that, it's not too late, all right? We sent an email out to the whole church this week that had links to a bunch of different types of Bible reading plans. If you did not get that email and you would like that information, just text or email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com and we will get it to you. We also posted it on our Facebook feed uh, last night. Didn't put it on Instagram because they make it impossible to share a link on that thing, but we did uh, put it out there on Facebook. And one of the reasons I'm passionate about this is when you read your Bible every day that you, you are forced to engage with passages of Scripture that your pastor may not get to because you've got 52 Sundays a year, right? 52 Wednesdays a year. We can't get to all of it. Um, your, your Sunday school teacher, your small group leader might not get around to it. Uh, it might not come up in your daily devotional book. When you're reading the Bible every day, it's like you just got to deal with the fact that there was a moment where Saul like, conjured up Samuel from the dead, all right? Your devotional book might not deal with that, but you read your Bible every day, you got to deal with that. And so uh, I love that. And as I was reading through my Bible reading plan earlier this year, I ran into Joshua chapter 5. And it's one of those passages that if you weren't in a Bible reading plan, you might not ever land in it. Uh, it, it might not be one that, that shows up in your quarterlies, and yet it is a very important passage. And I think in particular, it's important for us as a church at this moment in time. In Joshua 5, a little context, the people are coming back from a very, very long trial. God's people were in Egypt, enslaved there by Pharaoh. And God delivers His people and they escape and they are to return to the land promised to Abram. And in that land, they will be blessed if they keep covenant with God. And so Moses' generation leaves Egypt And they get to the promised land, and it's time to enter in, and they are afraid. In fact, everyone is afraid, except Joshua and Caleb. And Israel doubts God. Therefore, God does not allow Moses' generation to enter into the promised land. Joshua's generation will go in, Moses' will not. Instead, they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and they will learn what it is to depend on God. But as we get to Joshua 5... Joshua's generation is crossing into the promised land. In chapter 4, they pass through the Jordan on dry ground, much the same way that they left Egypt. Miraculously entering in the same way that they left Egypt, so that they know as they go into the promised land that it is all God, right? God is giving them entrance into the promised land as much as He gave them deliverance from the hand of Pharaoh. And as they enter in, the question for Joshua as a leader is, what is he going to do to ensure that the people do not make the same mistake as their parents, 
What will he do to shepherd the people so that they would continue to depend on God and not forget what they had learned in the wilderness? It's this really exciting time in the history of Israel. They have been waiting on this moment for an entire generation. And in Joshua 5, that time arrives. What will Israel do to ensure that they are faithful and they don't repeat the mistakes of the past? So I read through Joshua 5 a few months ago and I thought, man, this feels like a pretty good metaphor for Seaford. After wandering in building debt for years, God has put us in a, possession, a position to be free from it. In many ways, we have been trekking through the wilderness and, and moving toward this debt-free land of Canaan. Well, as we enter 2023, we're pretty much here. Like, we are days, if not weeks, away from being out of debt. And so what are we going to do to ensure that we don't repeat some actions of the past that we deem to be mistakes? What will we do to ensure that future generations of this church will be in a position to faithfully minister from this spot at 1311 Seaford Road until the Lord Jesus returns? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Before I read the passage, let me be clear. I'm not trying to make Joshua 5 about us. It's not about, it's not about us. It's not about Seaford Baptist Church. It's not about me. It's not about you, okay? It is about Israel at the time of Joshua as they're about to enter into the promised land. That's what it's about. I'm not trying to read us into the passage, but I think there are principles in the passage that we can glean and that are very important for us that we can apply and that are going to help us down the road of faithfulness, help us down the road of starting 2023 with our hearts and our minds unified in the right direction. And that direction, of course, is glorifying God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, but we'll get there in just a second. Joshua 5, verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt, though all the people who had came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked... Forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. 
And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Father, I pray you'd help us with this passage this morning to understand it, to understand its original meaning, but to also be able to apply it to our lives, God. We need you. We need you. We don't want to try to navigate the years that are ahead without you, Lord. We know that would be disaster. We need you, and we turn to your word, and we want to hear you speak. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We start with verse 1, which is a whole paragraph. When the kings of the Amorites and the Canaanites hear about Israel coming into the promised land, they are disheartened, they are dispirited, they are in fear. Israel has a mission to complete, they are on that mission, and their enemies are in terror because they have heard how God acts and what God does to the enemies of Israel when Israel is on a mission. We get the briefing for Israel's mission in Joshua 1, 1 through 5. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I have promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea going toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Their mission is to drive the idolatrous nations out of the land. They will not do this in their own strength. They will not do this in Joshua and Caleb's strength. They will do this in the Lord's strength. It is the Lord who will give the land. It is the Lord who will ensure that the enemies of Israel fall. The previous generation did not trust God on this. God offered his strength. God provided his strength. They doubted his strength. They rejected his strength. This generation must avoid that, which is why the Lord tells Joshua, right after he gives him the mission briefing, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all uh, according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Like God's people at Gilgal, we are on a mission. They had a mission, and we are on a mission. We are not on a mission to clear out the promised land by blood. We are not on a mission that requires a sword. We are on a mission to get people to the promised land by blood, right? We're not trying to clear out the promised land by blood. We are trying to get people to the promised land. We're trying to get people to heaven, and we're trying to get them there by the blood of Jesus. We are on a mission to make disciples and to see God's name honored in every tribe, in every nation, in every people group, and by every tongue. Jesus gave us our mission briefing in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then I love this. What did he say to Joshua? I will not leave you or forsake you. And what does he say to us as we go about our mission? I am with you always to the end of the age. And in the same way that victory would not belong to Joshua and it would not belong to Caleb and it would not belong to the people, victory in our mission does not belong to us. We are faithful to herald the word word of God, to proclaim the word of God, to shout it from the rooftops, but God is the one who does the saving. God is the one who does the redeeming. Therefore, salvation and victory belong to the Lord. But as His servants, we should be doing everything we can to fulfill the task of the Great Commission, to complete the mission that the Lord Jesus gave us. Everything we do as a church should be about fulfilling the task. We say here that we are the workmanship of Christ. We get that from Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You say, well, what are these good works that we walk in as Jesus' church? The good works that we walk in ultimately boil down to glorifying God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That's our purpose. Everything we do is to that end, to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And in light of that, one of the things we've longed to do here at Seaford is to be able to commit more money to the mission field. And in this new era of debt-free ministry that is coming, it's a joyful thing that we can be more generous when it comes to God's mission. We have career missionaries we support with your tithes and offerings, and we will continue to support them as God leads. But we also have an opportunity to cooperate with other churches in our convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, in order to do kingdom work. Now, Southern Baptists aren't the only people doing mission work on the block, all right? But our convention, which is less of a denomination, less of an organization, more of a big tent, underneath this big tent, when churches come together and work together, we accomplish a lot more together than we do when we are apart. People ask me all the time, do you really think Southern Baptist denomination is the best denomination on the face of the planet? Look, I'm not here to like beat the Southern Baptist drum and give you the big Southern Baptist commercial this morning. You can call it Southern Baptist. Some Southern Baptist churches now go by Great Commission Baptist. You can go by that. I'm not fired up about the name or any of that this morning. What I'm fired up about is the fact that we can get together with the gospel as our, our, our common core belief. And we can cooperate together to do so much together that we could not do if we were apart. So a perfect denomination, no. One that is worth staying in and uh, seeking to reform from the inside out, absolutely. And here's why. Because when we cooperate together, we can do things like this. Last year, Southern Baptists planted over 22,000 new churches around the world with cooperative program money. When I say cooperative program money, what I mean is that's money that all the churches send to the Southern Baptist Convention, and then they are taking that money and they are dispersing it out and, and getting it to the places that need it in order to do work like this. Over 107,000 new believers were baptized. Over 590,000 people heard the gospel preached. And 93 new people groups heard the gospel that did not hear it before. 
This is why we should leverage our debt-free status to invest more in cooperative program work, because we can accomplish so much in cooperating with other churches. Every time you give on a Sunday morning, you are giving toward the cooperative program, toward the sort of work that we're talking about here. Currently, 1.59% of our budget goes to the cooperative program. That is a percentage we should seek to greatly increase as we are getting out of debt. And then I want to challenge us to increase it by one percentage point every year after. That is the challenge laid down by our leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention. We also have a mission leadership team here at the church, and we are working on communicating with you all better. And so I hope that in this next year you're going to see uh, some, some things in terms of just visibility, trying to make sure that we have the missionaries before you, the work we're doing before you, so you know exactly what we're supporting, where we're supporting it, what they are doing there, how they are doing it, because I think that is only going to uh, result in you all feeling like, hey, I want to give more. I'm more fired up about this. There will be more unified support from the church body. So we'll be working on that too. But beyond what we do in the area of missions, when we fulfill the Great Commission as a church, it's not just putting our money in the offering plate and then sending that out to the nations. We do that. That is important. But we also do mission work here. We do that through our food pantry. We do that through the Good News Club. We do that through our partnerships with uh, a local mission organization like Peninsula Rescue Mission or CareNet Peninsula. But then you all, every day, wake up and you leave. And, and I don't go to work with you. You're not like, hey, this is my pastor. It's Pastor Michael. He's hanging out today. Just guiding me. Just guide me throughout the day, right? I can't do that. That would be weird. Okay, and, and, and so you all go every day to work or you go to the grocery store, you go out into the, into the world, you do the things that you do, and you are the ambassadors of Christ. And you are representing Jesus. And every day and all the interactions God has specifically brought into your life, you are an evangelist. You are a witness for the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And I would encourage you this year to take that more seriously than you ever have. And, and you know what I'm not calling you to do? I'm not calling on you to, to find a new evangelism method and to, to corner somebody out on the street and be like, did you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Listen, it's 2023 and it's America and that's not working anymore, even in the Bible Belt. You come to somebody with your sales pitch, they're done with you before you get started. What I have found lately is more effective in my evangelism is just sharing about the local church matter-of-factly. I was hanging out with some people this week I hadn't seen in a little while um, who, who don't know the Lord, and I was like, yeah, i got to get home. got a bunch of guys coming to my house at 7.30. They're building a, a mud room in the garage, and they're like, really? Is that because is that you live in the Parsonage? I was like, yeah, but they do it for anybody. And then one of the guys who's not a believer, he spoke up, and he was like, I bet that happens all the time. Like, somebody needs to move, y'all are just there. Like, something bad happens, y'all are just there, right? And I was like, yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> and he was like, that's something. He was like, that really is something. Folks, I, th I think that's the ticket. Let's just talk matter-of-factly about how glorious this is, the local church, and then invite people into it. And then as they come, I promise to you that we will preach the gospel. All right, I've gone a lot longer than that than I meant to. Let's keep going. We have our community outreach at church. We've got Upward, which is about to start, our light ministry, which you know just wrapped up, right? And, and we can be more generous and gracious in those areas as well. And just be more over the top in our love toward this community. So on every front, we can be more generous in fulfilling the Great Commission. Be more generous on the mission that God has given us. It's exciting. Let's go back. The people are on mission. 
But they couldn't just tear off and try to do the work apart from obedience. Joshua knows that they must be careful to do all of the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded them. Right? God told them this as a part of their mission briefing. Don't turn away from the law. If you are obedient to it, you will have success wherever you go. And for that reason, Joshua cannot say, all right, we're in the promised land. Everybody strap up. It's time to go to war. There are things that have to be done before they go on their mission. They must consecrate themselves and renew their commitment to obedience to the law of God. So for the rest of the chapter, you see them stopping to solidify their commitment in these two crucial areas of circumcision and Passover. He addresses circumcision first. In Genesis 17, there was a commandment given by God to Abraham that he would circumcise his sons, and then that practice would be handed down throughout the generations of Israel. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's got to be taken care of. You can't head off in the war with a bunch of covenant breakers. How's that going to go down in Jericho, right? So it's got to be taken care of. And it's important because circumcision is a sign of the promise between God and Israel. It's not that circumcision justified this generation before God. It doesn't. Physical circumcision could never justify a person before God, never make them right before God. Instead, it was a sign, a physical sign, that a man and his household were justified and they were covenant-keeping worshipers. Physical circumcision was an outward sign that the heart of a man belonged to God. Which is why Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 4, emphasizes the most important circumcision. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. You've got to be circumcised in the heart. And the circumcision of the flesh was an outward sign that the heart indeed was circumcised. This is why we can refer to baptism as the circumcision of the New Testament. It is an outward sign that we are new covenant worshipers with hearts that have been sealed for salvation by the Spirit of God. In Colossians 2, Paul says, In him... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What the author tells us in verses 4 through 7 is that the generation who came out of Egypt failed to circumcise their sons. None of the kids born in the wilderness were circumcised. 
So Joshua at Gibeath Haraloth takes it upon himself to right the wrong with flint knives. So let's be clear. When we say none of the kids born in the wilderness were circumcised, we're talking about kids who are not kids anymore. All right? We're talking about grown men like Joshua, like Caleb, who grew up with no physical identification with the covenant of God, and now they will be circumcised at an age where you are much more aware and much more understanding of pain than you would have been at eight days old. And practically, that sidelines the men from being able to fight for a little bit. Just it puts them on the sidelines. You see that in verse 8. And that's fine in Joshua's eyes. He's got no interest in going about trying to clear out the promised land apart from obedience to the laws of God. And it's this commitment that leads the Lord to say, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. It's been a whole generation since they left Egypt. The stink of Egypt has been hanging over them this whole time because they had not circumcised any of the kids who were born in the wilderness. And so when they circumcise that generation, God rolls the reproach away. And the Hebrew word for roll is galal, which sounds like Gilgal. Gilgal was probably already the name of this place, but Joshua's generation goes, man, we can just pack more meaning into it. And it becomes this really important place for Israel during the conquest of the promised land because it's like a home base for them. And then we see the people, after the circumcision, celebrate their first Passover in Canaan. Verse Uh, In Exodus 12, verse 14, it says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Just like circumcision was important to the whole nation because it identified them with God's covenant, it identified them with God's name, it identified them with their father Abraham and really the beginning of the nation, Passover was important because it identified them with God's saving acts of deliverance and bringing them out of Egypt. It was a feast meant to draw their attention back to the defeat of Pharaoh's army, uh, to deliverance uh, from slavery, to the leadership of God by the cloud and the flame. And the observance of the Passover before a single sword is swung in conquest shows us again that Joshua is intent as a leader on honoring God at this crucial moment in the history of Israel. The reason God gave the Passover to the people is so they would not be forgetful. So they would not forget what He did for them in Egypt. And as they are about to go to the task of driving out the inhabitants of the land and driving out their false gods and driving out their false idols and driving out their horrible pagan practices like child sacrifice. They have to go remembering that the same God who delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh will now deliver them from the Amalekites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and any other ites that come up against them in the land. And so in circumcision and in the Passover, I think what we're seeing here is that Joshua is determined we will not just be warriors for the Lord, we will be worshipers of the Lord. We will be a worshiping people. Before we go on mission, we must worship. That's Joshua's cry as a leader. And so relating it to us again, we can say that like God's people at Gilgal, Seaford Baptist is, must be, dedicated to the Lord's worship. We cannot approach this new year and this new time at SBC and think that we're going to do any good if our hearts are far from the Lord. Our work will go as far as our worship. 
After all, that's what makes Christian service so special. It's not just that you serve God and do some nice things, but that in serving Him and doing those good things, it is attached to the ultimate good. In our service, we're worshiping God, we're enjoying God, and that is what He made you to do, to worship Him and to enjoy Him forever. And so, in this new era of debt-free ministry at Seaford, we want to take this seriously. We've been in a process for a couple of years now to try and be really intentional in not just valuing worship, but valuing depth in worship. We're going to continue that. But it's also not just about what we do in the building. It's about what you do as a daily worshiper. That's why we gave you the daily worship book in 2023. And some of you have got that, and you're going to be using that. And other you, I know, others of you I know have other plans for how you're going to daily worship this year. But, it's like I talked about that Bible reading time earlier, you need intimacy with God. And I would challenge you to go beyond simply reading your Bible every day. Come before God adoring Him every day. Come before God looking into the perfection of His law. Confessing His sin. Giving Him thanks for the fact that He forgives you uh, for the sin that you have committed because of of what his son has done consecrate yourself set yourself apart for the day ahead worship him each and every day the same way you're worshiping him this morning draw close be serious this year about intimacy with God I know it sounds redundant for the pastor to get on stage and say well make God a priority in everything that you do but that is what a worshiper does no matter what's going on in a worshiper's life The worshiper is asking, how can I make God a priority in this? How can I put him first? How can I make him number one? So whether we are gathered or whether we are away from one another at the daily grind of living, we must be a worshiping people. After all, who else are you going to praise? We're about to get out of debt. I didn't get us out of debt. You didn't get us out of debt. He got us out of debt. Right? He, he's the one that has, has, has brought us into this new era of ministry. He is the provider. He is Jehovah Jireh. Who else would we give our worship and our thanksgiving to each day? Going back to the text, look at verse 12. All the reward of the promised land is not just in the future. They're already tasting the fruit of it. When Israel wandered in the wilderness, they had to rely on God to provide, uh, provide manna for them. That's what kept them going. They had to rely on God for their daily bread. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. But now as they enter into the promised land in Joshua's generation, they don't need the manna anymore because they can actually start to eat from the land, the land that flows with milk and honey. And here we are starting to see them in verse 12, eating the fruit of Canaan. Here's some good news. Like God's people at Gilgal, Seaford Baptist is tasting the Lord's reward already. The fact that the people are finally eating the fruit of the land again is huge. Why did they have to leave Canaan in the first place? They had no food. Right? Jacob and his family had to go down to Egypt because there was this dignitary down there who was hooking them up with food and who he didn't realize until he got there was his long-lost son Joseph. When they're in the wilderness after leaving Egypt, they have to depend on God for manna because they do not have food. And now finally, after all those years, God's people are back home and they got bread in their hands from the land. Fruit in their hands from the land. There's so much work ahead of them. But there at Gilgal, as they've just entered into Canaan, God says, taste a little fruit now. 
Eat now. Be joyful now. Getting out of this debt is a massive blessing, but now that we're out, we have a lot of work to do. But before we get to that work, there's this fruit that God just says, you can just eat this now because I'm good. So for example, God willing, in February, we're going to have a uh, members meeting and we are going to amend our budget and vote a quarter million dollar mortgage off the books. That's a big piece of fruit, folks. That's a big apple, right? That he just goes, hey, just eat this. Just eat this and then rejoice in me. And then from there, it's going to free us up to do some things we've wanted to do because I, I don't know about you, so I've been here for 11, some of you have been here longer, and there's this thing we do sometimes, we go, well, when we get out of debt, we can, well, you know, when the debt goes away, we'll be able to, we don't have to do that anymore. We're not going to have to do that anymore. We're actually going to be able to do some of those things that for a long time we said, well, when we get out of debt, we'll be able to, now when you say, hey, let's go do that thing. So, for example, we have this building that we have paid for, we need to care for it now, and we're going to be able to care for it now in a strategic manner. You know from your own life at home, when you're in debt, it's hard to plan. So much effort goes into sustaining, but when you get out of debt, you can do less sustaining and you can just you know, do more careful planning. So we have a long-range planning team, folks on it, who have created a plan where we're prioritizing parts of our facility that we need to update or we need to renovate or there's places we need to demolish, there's places we need to paint, there's places we need to uh, replace, right? We can do all of these things now in God's time um, according to that plan those folks are coming up with, right? Because we thankfully will have the resources, and we do all that because we want this building to be our Gilgal. It's our home base, a, a central place of light and joy to this community, a place where we can come back together to get fueled up to go back out on the mission, a, a place where we can actually fulfill the Great Commission. I know many of you have given to debt retirement faithfully for years, and some of you have said to me, well, listen, what do I give to now? When I have gifts I want to give to the church above and beyond my tithe, what do I give to now? And my answer to you would be uh, the thing we just talked about, missions, right? You can always give uh, toward missions, or you can give toward what we're going to call the Campus Improvement Fund, which is just money we're earmarking for the long-term care of the facility, for things that are too big to budget for, right? Um, but things that we need to take care of. And you say, is this really important? Should we really be putting money aside, thousands of dollars aside to care for this building? Listen, there are church plants scrambling all over this country just to find a place to meet. And the more um, post-Christian the country becomes, the harder it is for them to find a movie theater at an affordable price or a public school willing to let them meet there. Churches are desperate for buildings. This building is not the most important thing, but it is a very important thing that makes it so much easier for us to do the most important thing, which is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. We can build and care for our staff as well. If I connect uh, staff and campus, one thing we're going to consider this year is hiring a full-time maintenance person. For years, we have had volunteers who have kept this place up and running, sometimes with bubble gum and duct tape. And while they love that work, we are looking to uh, approach it in, in a different way. And here's why. Let me say something. There are men and women who have kept this building up and running for years with their planning, with the service of their hands, 
um, giving money that nobody ever saw, giving time nobody ever saw. You know who you are, and you know what you've done here, and thank you. I seriously mean that. Thank you. Let, let's, in fact, all, we, we all know that there are people who have kept this building up and running through a, a tough time. And so let's all say that to them together. Thank you, right? We are thankful for the men and women who have done this. So this isn't, this isn't saying to, to that group, hey, we got some money now. Get out of here, all right? That's not it. No, it's we got some money now. You don't have to kill yourself doing this anymore all the time. And, and let's free you up to be able to use your talents and, 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 uh, and your skills and abilities to do some other things in the church. Beyond the potential of that new position, I think we have positions filled by highly valuable people, and we'd like to keep them around. And so without debt, our personnel committee can research industry standards uh, for, for pay and, and just make sure we're compensating the people we value at the right level. So when it comes to these areas of campus and staff, these are things we can pursue right now. Like in the next year, we can pursue uh, the, those, the obedience in those areas. We can pursue wise actions in those areas. And God's letting us eat a little bit of the fruit of the land right off the bat. But that being said, we've got to be patient. Because I know that when money becomes available in any organization and in church, it's like, well, we ought to do this, we ought to do this, we ought to do this. We can't do it all at once. And so we've got to be patient. We've got to take our time, and we've got to be wise. We can't go crazy and try to, try to eat the whole vineyard. We have to make spiritual and financial decisions in the next few years that set this church up for generations of faithfulness until the Lord returns. Let's wrap it up, verses 13 through 15. Just before Israel's first big battle, Joshua looks up and he sees this man with a sword in his hand. And Joshua asks him, are you friend or are you foe? And the man doesn't answer the question, which I love. He says, no, but I am the command of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Who is this man doing the talking? Who is the commander of the Lord's army? I think Joshua's response gives us an idea of who it is. Joshua falls down on his face and he starts worshiping. And that's not corrected, by the way. Right? The commander would say, don't worship me. The worship is accepted. He goes prostrate and he ascribes a sort of reverence to this commander that should only be given to God and it is accepted, which has led many to believe that this is actually Christ himself making an appearance in the Old Testament. We would call that a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I think sometimes people get a little too excited and be a little too quick to try to point out Christophanies and claim certain figures uh, are, are Old Testament appearances of Christ when we're not really sure. But I think in this case, we can be pretty sure. Who else is the commander of the Lord's army but the one who will one day return on a white horse to make war against his enemies and restore the kingdom once and for all? It's Jesus. Joshua is falling down before the pre-incarnate Son of God, the commander of the angels, the commander of the church, and that is why the commander says, yeah, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. It's holy ground because the holy, holy, holy God of the universe is standing before him wielding a sword. And Joshua takes off his shoes because he recognizes he's not the one in charge. By the way, if you want to know how I've made peace with my professional football team having like an XFL or a USFL mascot name, all right, this passage has been helpful. I don't see any cowboys of the Lord's army in here, okay? Just saying. We might stink, but at least we're in the Bible, all right. We do stink. All right, here we go. Joshua and his people are surrendered to the authority of the Lord here. 
before they head off to Jericho, it's not them in charge. It's not Joshua leading the army. It's the one he's bowed down to. And like God's people at Gilgal, Seaford Baptist Church must be surrendered to the Lord's authority. The same commander of the Lord's army in Joshua 5 is the commander of this church. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ is the head of the church. If I were to drop dead tomorrow and your senior pastor was gone, I don't want that to happen, but if that were to happen, and well, you know what, I'd be in heaven, it wouldn't be that bad, but uh, if, if that were to happen and, and to, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain, I was with the Lord, you would still have your commander tomorrow. It's Jesus. He is our authority. As we are trying to determine what to do and how we do it and when we do it as a debt-free church, again and again we have to come back to this idea that we are not our own. We don't get to make the decisions. We do not operate in our own authority. We're members of His body. He is the head. What He says goes. So when we're dealing with questions about church membership or discipleship or missions or anything, bottom line is, what saith the Lord? If God has spoken clearly on a subject, then it's not hard. We do what He says. Doing what He says might be hard, but making the decision isn't hard. We do what He says. If He's not been clear on a subject, we use the wisdom from His Word to try to make a decision that's going to honor Him. We have a host of issues to deal with in the coming years. I've, dealt, I've, I've, I've talked about some of them this morning, like uh, a more robust missions program, being good stewards of the building we've paid for, caring for the staff that we have. There's other issues I have not mentioned that are very much present that we have to deal with uh, in the coming years. Correcting a church role to reflect our active membership, a more well-defined discipleship process, getting somebody from that point A of conversion to point B, where they are now teaching somebody everything Jesus has taught them finding new ways to evangelize in this culture. These are all things we'll deal with. But the issues on the table are only properly handled in God's wisdom. If we were a business, we would turn to consultants and experts, market trends, and that would be, that, that's what our authority would be, right? If we were selling something, the demand of the customer and the desires of the customer would be our authority. If we were just a nonprofit charity, our bylaws and our guiding principles might be our authority. But we are the church. And our leader, the commander of the Lord's army, has spoken. You hold his word in your hand, and that word is your final authority. So as we launch from Gilgal on our mission, we may not be the trendiest church around. I'm not a fool. I've seen others. I know that there's some hip happening places out there, and you're supposed to snap like that when you say that, all right? I, I know that... Like if you were going to put us in like a battle of the bands competition, Pastor Ben knows we're not winning battle of the bands against the other churches. We might not have the most state-of-the-art building. We might not have the most electric atmosphere. We might not have the most numbers. To tell you the truth, I don't care. I don't. Because none of those statements say anything about faithfulness. Are we faithful? That's what I care about. That's what matters. Is the music Christ-honoring and edifying? Would an unbeliever walk in here and know who we're singing to and what we're singing about? Is the building hospitable? Is it designed to flourish the Lord's work? Is it filled with people who love Jesus and are serious about His mission to reach the world with the local church? Is the atmosphere filled with a love for God? Electric. What is electric? Is it filled with the love of Jesus for one another in a lost world? That's what matters. 
Are we growing in a healthy way, spiritually and numerically, in God's time and by His power? These are the things I care about. You can be the trendiest, coolest, state-of-the-art, most electric church with all the biggest numbers. You know what? Being the it church, you're the it church for five years, a new it church will come along. Because there's always a new way of doing things, and somebody's going to do it better than you. If it's all a centimeter deep, because it's not rooted in God's Word, it's just a religious business that's probably getting most of its customers off the rolls of other churches, not Satan's domain. I want a real work here, folks. I'm not interested in stealing Christians from other churches. I want a real work here. I want to see people that don't know Jesus turn away from their sin and trust in Him. That's what I want. I know that you want that. And in a real work of God, there will be external growth. We will baptize. We will disciple. The Lord will help us. We will do it. But we've got to be patient and follow the commander. What happens after this? Well, they march around Jericho and they take down one of the biggest, baddest bullies in the land. Clearly, the posture of their hearts and their commitment to keeping covenant with God put them in a place to be faithful to the mission God called them to at a crucial point in their history. They were on God's mission, dedicated to God's worship, tasting the Lord's reward, surrendered to God's authority. Let's go into 2023 doing the same. Let's burn a note this year. Amen? Let's tell some people God is good this year. Let's baptize some lost souls this year. Let's teach some people what Jesus has taught us, and let's show Seaford what it looks like when the love of Jesus flows through the merciful hands of His people. Let's be His workmanship. Let's head out from Gilgal. And let's do it for the glory of his name. Father God, the plans of a man's heart are what they are, but the answer of the tongue, or, or the answer uh, ultimately comes from the Lord. We, we know that, God. We, we know that we've talked a lot about plans this morning, but we ended with the most important thing. You're the one in control, so we only want to do what you want us to do. And so we pray that you would guide us, God. We pray that you would guide us. We are yielded to you. And I pray, Father, that, um, that as a church body this year, it would just be a really, really sweet 2023. I'm asking for that, God. I'm not asking that you, wouldn't, that you would keep us from suffering. We know that there, there will be suffering. I'm not asking that you keep us from persecution. If we do what you want us to do, we may very well come up against persecution if we're living godly lives for you. We're not asking for you to shield us and protect us from anything negative that could come into our lives. We're just asking that you would help us to be faithful witnesses for you this year and that we would get so much joy from being obedient to you that no matter what else happens in our lives, we're just rejoicing. Because even though... We might have the whole world pushing back against us, God, if we are walking in your will and we are obedient to you as a church. Nothing else is going to matter. So I, I just prayed we get tunnel vision for you this year, God, that, that we would just be obsessed with obeying you and loving you and adoring you and, and showing your love to people, that we would keep it real simple, that we would not overcomplicate this, and that we would fulfill the task you've given us to make disciples. Don't let us drift from this mission, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.